So chapter 2, we've been looking at chapter 2, and that's when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And they're dwelling in Jerusalem at that time were devout Jews, devout men, Jews from where? Every nation under earth. Now that's a hyperbole. It wasn't from every nation, but from a multitude of nations, these Jews gathered together there in Jerusalem for what purpose? Celebrating the Passover. Celebrating the Passover. Shavuot, right? They're celebrating the Passover and they've come together. And the 120 that are in the upper room, who were they? Jews, Jews, who now came to an understanding that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Hmm? The Mashiach Dagid, the promise that Moses made that one would come, a prophet like unto me, but greater than a prophet. And so he was, right? And he came and 120 received the promise of the Father, which was the promise of the Holy Spirit upon them. And then they went out into the streets filled with the Holy Spirit, because whenever the Holy Spirit, whenever there's a revival, whenever the Holy Spirit comes into the life of man or woman, they need to go out. Oh, you can't keep that good news within, right? You have to take that good news without. The difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, right? You have to have that outlet. And so they went out into the streets, and they were proclaiming this glorious, glorious, glorious gospel of the reconciliation of our lives to God, the forgiveness of our sins through the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And they were speaking in the dialect, in the language and the specific dialectos of those who gathered together various languages, various dialects, and yet they were all amazed because these Galileans, and Galileans were not known to be highly educated people. Galileans were the working class, right? And yet they were absolutely amazed. And how is it they're speaking in our language, in our dialect? But then some mocked and said they must be drunk, drunk. And then Peter gives up, and he gives a second presentation from Peter that we have in the book of Acts. There'll be seven times where Peter gets up and makes statements. The first one was when they were replacing somebody who? Judas, replacing Judas. But now Peter's going to get up, and he's going to explain to them what exactly they're seeing and hearing. Now, what was birth that day? Messianic Judaism. Please, please, please understand it. Now, every 99% of the people you ask the question, what happened on the day of Pentecost? What will they say? The church wasn't birthed on Pentecost. Messianic Judaism was birthed on Pentecost, where Israel's eyes were opened, partially, right? But we have been grafted in as a result of that wonderful, glorious event. But that's what took place that day. Messianic Judaism was birthed. And through that, the church gathered together. Hmm? So Peter gets up and he explains that this is that. And whenever we practice anything, whenever we uh, purpose to believe in anything, it has to be supported by what? Feelings? Experience? Do we embrace experiential Christianity? No, we don't. We take any experience that we may have with the Lord or with others of a spiritual matter, and we bounce that against the Word of God. You always have to measure that against the Word of God. What does the Word of God have to say? Now, if it's altering the Word of God in any way, if it's contrary in any way, what should you do? Forget about it. Just forget about it. <laughs> forget about it, right? But today, unfortunately, most of what people base their belief upon is their own personal experiences or how they... Ooh. Not good, right? No, we have to base what we believe and practice upon the truth, and we have to be able to say, like Peter, this is that. That. Which was spoken of. Hmm? Paul would describe the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians by saying that Jesus Christ died according to the... and that he was buried according to the... but on the third day, hallelujah, he rose again according to the... So important, beloved, that you have a very deep, complete, accurate understanding of the word of God so that you can be kept from deception. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by 
Not by your feelings and not by your experiences, beloved. No matter what they might be. Hmm? And so Peter explained to them that this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to describe Joel chapter 2, verses 28 on through the rest of the chapter. And we know that contextually, as we read that text in Joel, we know that what is being prophesied there by God through Joel was what? I know most of you weren't here last week. He was prophesying the resurrection of the state of Israel after the rejection that had taken place after the times of the Gentiles, after the church age, in the day of the Lord. He was prophesying what was going to occur at the day of the Lord. When does the day of the Lord begin? Maybe this afternoon. Wouldn't that be wonderful? At the rapture of the church, when the times of the Gentiles is over. That is specifically when that fulfillment will be completed. But, you know, like so many other Bible prophecies, there can be a near fulfillment, a mid-fulfillment, and a final fulfillment of a Bible prophecy. And I can explain that to you sometime, but not today. But you'll see there's, there's a near and a far fulfillment of scriptures. And this scripture of Joel, chapter 2, has a near fulfillment in the fact that Pentecost was likened unto. But the complete fulfillment of what Joel had prophesied will take place at the very end of the age. In two weeks. No. <laughs> I don't know when it'll be. But at the very end of the age, what Joel had prophesied will take place because contextually, as you read the rest of the chapter in chapter 2, very difficult times, distressing times, a tribulation, a suffering upon the world, which the world has never seen before, nor will ever see again. But Peter gets up in chapter 2 and he starts to explain what this is that they're experiencing, that they're seeing. So he talks about the, the fact of the matter is that they crucified Jesus Christ. But God predetermined the rejection of Jesus by Israel. Why? So the rest of the world could be saved. Now where do we read that? Romans. Some of you, I know some of you during the week read Romans 9, 10, and 11, where God is talking about through the Apostle Paul, through Rabbi Saul, that, that God has not forsaken Israel, that there's going to be a restoration of the Jewish people. When truly Pentecost is completely fulfilled in the fact that the Jews will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, and they will be spiritually born again as a nation, right? And that's the true fulfillment of that. But you see, Peter was saying that this rejection that has happened of the Messiah by Israel is only in part. It's only temporary. Why? Because God's purpose and God's plan was to save the world. For God so loved the world. Is that true? Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Tells me so. And how did he display his love? By allowing his, his firstborn... And that's what he calls Israel, my firstborn. His firstborn, his dear son, to reject him for the salvation of the neighbors. <laughs> Isn't that marvelous? So we read that in the foreknowledge of God, the Christ was crucified by Israel. Why? For the purpose of God saving the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles come to salvation and fall in love with the God of Israel, with the Messiah of Israel, when they fall in love with Israel and the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament, it'll bring the Jews to... Do you bring your Jewish friends to jealousy? Co-workers, neighbors? You should. Encouraging them and letting them know the preeminence that God had placed upon the Jewish people. Why? Because he loved them any more than he loved you? Why? Because they were any more important than you? Why? Because they're the least likely that God would use. But God used Israel the Jewish people, the most persecuted, maligned people on the face of the earth to represent his beauty, his law, his grace, his mercy, his salvation to the rest of the world. That's why he chose them. Very simple, wasn't it? And then he went on to talk about the proofs of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and resurrected from the dead. Remember, as we picked it up in verse 25, he quotes Psalm 16. And what is Psalm 16 all about? That the Messiah would not suffer corruption, that he would die, he would be buried, but his soul would not be left in Sheol or Hades. 
And it was David who was writing that psalm, speaking that psalm. And he said, certainly it can't be talking about David. Why? There's his tomb. His bones are still in there. David didn't raise from the dead. Nobody saw David walking upon the earth. No, David was speaking of a greater than David, the son of David, the son of God, who would be raised from the dead. That was the first proof he gives of all that he's stating. It's important that we give proofs. What was the second proof that he gave in verse 32? That the apostles were witnesses of the resurrection. Not only has he fulfilled Psalm 16, what was prophesied by David with regard to the Messiah, we are witnesses of these very things. We saw them with our own eyes, right? And then the third proof that he gives, where is that? That he poured out the Holy Spirit as promised. And we see that <clears throat> in verse 33. That the fulfillment of Pentecost was the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made that the Father would send out the Holy Spirit to be with us. And then the fourth proof that he references, the fourth proof is what? Verse 34, the ascension, where again he quotes the Psalm 110. And he says, the Lord God said to my Lord Jesus... Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter is presenting this case. Now listen to me. This is very important. He's presenting everything that he believes and his, all of his positions based upon Scripture. Scripture. He's validating, he's validating his experience by Scripture. Do you see this, beloved? Every, every experience that you have, if you believe it's from God, you need to validate that through Scripture. Otherwise, we can be so easily deceived. Deceived. Yeah. Very important. Now, we'll pick it up where we left off in verse 36. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. Ooh. Wait a minute. You're hurting my feelings. I find that very offensive. Let's, let's cancel this guy. I'm going to defriend him. Did you hear what he said? Who crucified Jesus? I did. Who crucified Jesus? I, who crucified Jesus? I did. You got to identify with the fact that your sins put him on the cross. My sins put him on the cross, right? Today, you can't speak truth, hard truth to people any longer. They're too offended so easily. Well, let me tell you something. I've been reading the Bible for 42 years. And it offends me and my flesh all the time. Is that not true? If you're, if you're not offended, if your flesh isn't offended, if you're reading the scriptures, then you're not reading it correctly. Because the word of God is an offense to my flesh, but it's food to my soul, to my spirit. Is that not true? Yeah. So he told them, he said to them, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Kurios and Christos, made him Lord Kurios. Now, Kurios is used several times to describe God the Father. So therefore, Jesus Christ and God the Father are? One. Jesus Christ and God the Father are? One. one. Make no mistake about that. Kurios and Christos. What does that mean? Messiah. It's, the Christos is the Greek interpretation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. That Jesus is not only God, he is the Messiah, the promised Messiah who would come and take away the sins of the world. Hallelujah! Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. But you, Israel, what have you done? You crucified your own Messiah. You crucified the God-man. Now, when they heard this, they all went home and canceled him. Is that what they did? Excommunicated. Excommunicated. Out of here. Silence that man. Katonusos. Katonusos. Ah! That's what it means. When they, listen, when they heard that, katonusos, ah! they were stabbed in the heart. Now, what happens if you get stabbed in the heart? You die. You get stabbed in the heart and you got a few minutes left. What are you going to do? Ah! Right? 
Now listen, that's, that, don't downplay this. That's the reaction. They understood the Holy Spirit, gave them understanding in exactly what Peter was saying. Ah! I did that. We did that. If we killed our own Messiah, the Savior of Israel, what hope is there for us? No one. Well, listen, you've got to understand their desperation. What did we sing this morning? If ever I need you, Lord, I need you. I lift my hands in. Desperation. You see, you're not desperate, folks. That hit me as we're sitting there singing that song. Last week when we ended the service, I said, if you're desperate, do what? Come to the 6 o'clock prayer and join me. Get on your knees, get on your face, let's get before the Lord and show him we're desperate. Not that we want to be given a message that will motivate us and move us and inform us. Not that we want to come together in a wonderful, joyful fellowship experience and sing some songs together. I'm desperate for God. I want to see God move in my life. More now than ever before in my life. More now than ever in my 42 years of walking with him. If you're desperate with God, why don't you come out at 6 o'clock tonight? Let's see. But indicative of the fact that you don't understand how desperate you need to be right now is you didn't know that in that song we sang, I lift my hands in desperation, Lord. I'm desperate. Are you? Do you not see what's going on out there? Do you not watch the news? Do you see how our nation is crumbling? All of those institutions that were so foundational to us, they're gone, they're quicksand. We need time. We need to be desperate. Like, like the Jews that day who said to Peter, ah! what must we do? You want to save your kids? You want to see God save your grandkids? You want to see God say your sons, your daughters, your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers? Yeah. You've got to be desperate yeah. and cry out to God. Peter gave them the remedy for their sinful actions, for their abhorrent lives, for that perverseness of that generation. And if they were perverse then, how much more so are we today? Is that, amen? amen? Oh, boy. And Peter said to them, in their desperation and in their cries. Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So you got to repent and be baptized, right? For salvation? No. 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 Please understand that. In the Greek grammar, the way this phrase is constructed, both repent and remission of sins are in the plural form. They're connected. Repent and experience the remission of your sins. Repent and experience the remission of your sins. The, and be baptized in the singular form, meaning well, as a result of that, then you want to be obedient to the Lord, you want to be baptized. Does baptism save you? No, no, no. no. The same Peter who gave this sermon lets us know no less than three other times in the book of Acts that the remission of sins is only required by belief in Jesus alone. Go with me to chapter 10. Acts 10 for one moment. Keep your finger in Acts 2. As the proof text, this is that. Let's point to it. Anything we believe, anything we practice needs to be validated and affirmed by Scripture itself. Baptism is not required for salvation. Baptism, listen to me now, baptism is required if you're going to live a life completely obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ because he demands and commands that us be baptized. Why? What's baptism? Baptism is a symbol, a display, a sign to everyone else that we have identified with the death of Christ, the burial and death of Jesus Christ, and raised in a newness of life. It doesn't save you. It's a sign. It's a symbol of your salvation. It is an outward sign of an inward change that's already occurred in your life. Now, some of you may have never been baptized, and you need to consider that. Do you want to live a life obedient to everything that God said? Some of you are still home from uh, COVID and you don't come to church when the Lord commands us to not forsake what? The assembling of yourselves together, even more so as you see the day approaching. Why? The church is a gift from God, isn't it? And it requires? The church is a gift from God that requires assembly. 
Now, you know those gifts that you used to give your children that required assembly and you wouldn't, listen, you wouldn't read the instructions? And then when you got it all done, you wonder why I had all these spare parts? Well, here it is. Here's all the instructions, right, for the assembly. Isn't that true? Yeah. So do you want, do you want to live a completely obedient life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you should be baptized. Baptized. Now, we have an open communion when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We have an open communion. That's, it's a, anybody who professes faith in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come. But I would suggest this. If you haven't been baptized, you shouldn't take communion. Get baptized. It's a simple matter. And if you're interested in baptism, you can see me or any one of the pastors or John Michael. We'll be holding a baptism soon. Again. But Peter declares, go back to Acts chapter. Did I read that 43? No. 1043. Speaking of, speaking of Jesus, right? He says to him, oh, by the way, who's, who's Peter talking to in chapter 10? Cornelius. The house of Cornelius. This is glorious. I want you to, I want to let this sink in, okay? Because so many people would say to you, well, what about those primitive peoples in faraway lands who have never heard? Well, what about them? What do you answer? What about them? All creation at one time knew the Lord, and man rejected him. And so the sins of the fathers have been passed down unto the children, to the children, to the children's children, to the fifth, fourth, sixth, fifteenth, tenth, twentieth generation. How do we know that? Because, listen to me, who got off the boat? Eight people. Eight people. Who, who repop, repopulated the earth? The families of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Right? Ham, Shem, and Jacob. This is important. You need to have this, this apologetic that you can give to the world out there who accuses our God of being unfair, unloving. That when he got off the boat, it was Ham, Shem, and Japheth that repopulated the earth. In chapter 8, the son of Ham gets saved, the Ethiopian. In chapter 9, the son of Shem gets saved. That's the apostle Paul. In chapter 10, the son of Japheth gets saved. That's Cornelius. At one time, all the world knew the glorious saving merciful, gracious acts of our God. But man rejected him. God hasn't rejected him. We rejected him. Isn't that true? Yeah. So that was happening in chapter 10. It was Japheth, the son of Japheth, being Cornelius. But in verse 43, Peter says to the house of Cornelius, to him, all the prophets witness. To who? Jesus. The prophets all speak of Jesus. All 66 of the books of the Bible. It's all about Christ. The Bechor in the Old Testament, the Prototokos in the New, the chief, the preeminent one, the Godfather, the Father God. All the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. Wait a minute, Peter. You forgot. Now, there are, there are churches that will teach today. By the way, what are you women doing in here with no head covering? That's what I want to know. Jesus is our covering, yeah, yeah. And me too? Yeah. Just aside, be careful. There's a lot of legalists out there, pharisaical people, who try to lay upon you a law that, that God has not given to us, right? And there are many, many, many who say, you cannot receive salvation unless you are baptized. Is that true? Now, in Paul's day, the Judaizers were declaring you couldn't possibly receive salvation without circumcision. They were demanding that all of the men who profess faith in Christ, Jew, Gentile alike, that they had to be circumcised in order to truly be saved. You can't be saved by just believing in Jesus alone. That you must obey the rite of circumcision. And what did Paul say? Twice? Let them be accursed. Let me say it again, Paul said. Let them be accursed. An anathema. What does anathema mean? What? Damned. Yeah. Damned. Separated from God forever. Why? Paul, where's the love? Why would he say that? Because it's such a serious matter to God that you would put anything to the salvation experience that can only happen, the salvation that he has promised through the Messiah. It's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing, nothing. And it's so important. I come from a works-based 
belief. I come from Romanism, Catholicism. I was a Roman Catholic for 30 years. And in Roman Catholicism, you, you, you never had any assurance of your salvation. You had the hope of salvation, but you had to obey all of the sacraments of the church. And, and God forbid you should die and, and miss one of those sacraments because now, now somebody has to be faithful enough for you to has, have mass said in your, in your name, on your behalf, to pray you out of purgatory. And then for the right donation... The moment the coin in the kettle rings, your loved one from Purgatory Springs. That's how they built Peter's Basilica. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh. The book of Romans. The church that Paul wrote to. Such a glorious group of believers. And, and, and Paul wrote to them describing his treatise upon the grace of God better more than any other church. And yet look how far they have fallen away into becoming a works salvation. And then we had the Reformation that broke away from all of that, right? And, and declared that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. alone. Remember the five solas? What were the five solas of the Reformation? Sola Scriptore, the Scriptures alone. Declared by Sola Gratia, grace alone. Through Sola Fite, faith alone. In Sola Cristo, Christ alone. Sola gloria to the glory of God alone. Alone. The scriptures declare that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have salvation to the glory of God. And that's a glorious gospel, isn't it? Is that true? Yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. And that's what Peter's trying to describe here. All right, back to Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish the chapter today. So on the human side, the human element, Peter says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. Who's that? Us. It's, it's to the Jews and it's to their children and it's to those who are far off, the Gentiles. As many as, oh, here's the divine element the divine aspect, as many as the Lord our God. Now, it's, I, I know this is, a, this is a hard truth for most people to swallow. God elects. God predetermines who shall be saved. You didn't save yourself, and you did not choose God. Romans 5 makes it very, very clear, doesn't it, Pastor David? That while we were with no spiritual strength whatsoever, no spiritual inclination at all, God chose us. That while we were yet sinners, he saved us. Worse than that, he says, now while you were enemies of God, enemies, and he delivered you. Wow, isn't that amazing? The grace of God. Salvation, salvation is all a work of God from beginning to end. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, what does he say? For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own, but a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, if you saved yourself, then what has to happen subsequently? You need to keep yourself saved. Can you do that? No. Aren't you glad for God's keeping grace? I don't keep myself saved. These last 43 years, he's been faithful. Not me. Oh, my heart would have betrayed him long ago. My flesh and his desires, its cravings, its hungers, its thirsts. Isn't that true? No, no, no. You haven't kept yourself. God has kept me, and I'm so thankful for his keeping grace in my life. Turn to me to Romans chapter 8. Maybe you go home this afternoon and read through Romans chapter 8 again. That's where every one of us need to live continually. Why is Romans chapter 8 so important? Because Paul spends the first seven chapters of the book of Romans describing our lostness. Whether you're a religionist, and we have a lot of religionists here. I came down here from New York in 1989, a long time ago. 
And in New York, we have a bar or a strip joint on every corner. I came here to the promised land, Greenville, South Carolina, Bob Jones University. There's a church on every corner. I thought, this is going to be glorious. And you know what I found out? There's a lot of religion here. Cultural Christianity, a lot of religion, not much Jesus. I'm not a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. And so should you be, right? Because religion doesn't save you. Jesus does. Not by blood, right? John wrote this, speaking of the salvation that God has offered us. It's not by blood. And what does that mean? Your ethnicity. It's not your ancestry. Because I'm Jewish, I must be saved. Because I'm an American. God loves America, right? God bless him. No. It's not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh. What does that mean? You can't, your desire. You can't save yourself. You cannot save yourself. It wasn't in within you. You didn't desire God. God chose you, and he wooed you to where you couldn't say no. Remember? You didn't want me, but I made you want me. <laughs> I was irresistible for a while, wasn't I? Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm irritation. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> That's called transformation. <laughs> no. I'm redoing my master bathroom, and so we're sharing one small bathroom. And we made it here just in time this morning. <laughs> so you would large friends. I know I sympathize with you now. <laughs> oh, my God, where was I? <laughs> Paul talks about the lostness of man in the first seven chapters. First of all, he talks about the fact that a religion is you can't save yourself through religion. Not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man. And that's a religious system. Religion won't save you. But then he also describes in those seven chapters that if you're a heathen, you're still lost, right? The whole world is Even Mother Mary needed a Savior. She was a sinner. And then Paul breaks into that glorious eighth chapter because he describes in the end of chapter seven, that good that I will to do, I do not. That which I will not to do, I do. O wretched man, O wretched woman, who will save me? And the answer is, Jesus, but how? The person of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8 is all about the Holy Spirit now. And living a life in the Spirit. Having a mind of the Spirit, you'll not have, fulfill the mind of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Be renewed in the realm of your mind. And then it changes your behavior. It formed in your thinking. So this eighth chapter is this afternoon, when you're in your leisure, just read through the eighth chapter of Romans. That you don't ever want to leave there. You don't. You want to live in Romans chapter eight. But in particular, relative to our conversation, that God alone saves by election, whom the Father has called. Peter said, "Look at chapter eight, verse twenty-eight." And we know. What do we know? That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Pastor David did a wonderful message on Wednesday for communion. Do you know what your calling is? Do you know what the will of God is for your life specifically? Nobody is a spectator. Nobody is called to sit on the sidelines and watch this take place. Every one of us is called to be involved. Now, I got to suggest to you, the number of people overall that are really involved in the, this wonderful, glorious process of the progression of the church age, of the progression of the will of God, is a single digit. I didn't say one, but it's less than 10% that truly display that they're living the called life according to the purposes of God, rather than God jumping upon their purposes for which they call him. Lord, I want. Lord, I give me. Lord, do. No, that's not what it's about. It's about you yielding and surrendering and giving your life to God. The more I read the scriptures in the last 43 years, he asks more and more and more of my life. He said, I want your life. I want your soul. I want your spirit. I want your mind. I want you completely. Nothing less. Now, it's progressive. And so if you've been a Christian any length of time at all, then your surrender, your yieldness, and your service to God, not your yieldedness, your service to God should be displayed more and more and more in your life. If you're just a spectator, I don't know if you're saved. 
I'm just being honest. Because there's no allowance for that in the scripture. You with me? For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He foreknew those whom he would call. Therefore, he predestined them unto salvation, predetermined, elected, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he also predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, Kaletos, were the Agapetos, Kaletos, Hagios, the beloved called saints of God. That's what Paul describes us in the first chapter of Romans. Whom he called, Electos. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Oh, isn't that wonderful? What's missing there? Sanctification. Justification is wonderful, isn't it? You, do you remember that moment in time? I remember that moment in time, the summer of 1980. I, I don't remember the specific day. I'm sorry. God's got to record it. I'll find out when I go to heaven. But there was a specific moment in time where justification came where I knew I was saved. I knew God had chosen me, called me, elected me, because my mind and my heart and my life were open to him and surrendered to him. In an instant in time, justification means that at a, at a moment in time, God declares you, Nathan... Righteous, in spite of what Sarah may know about you. <laughs> it's a forensic term. It's a legal term where he just declares you righteous in the high court of heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Righteous. And then whom he justified, he also... <sighs> One day, Nathan, you're actually going to be in the state of righteousness. Hard to believe, isn't it? Huh? That one day you'll really be righteous, Nathan? That's glorification. What did he skip? Why do you think he skipped that? Because whom God chosen, right, will receive the ultimate gift of God, which is eternal life. But I also think he chose to skip sanctification because that's the most difficult part of our Christianity, isn't it? I mean, did, did you not wake up this morning? You know, somebody called me and said, Pastor, you're coming to church this morning? I said, no, nobody likes me there. <laughs> you ever have those days? You know? And, and then the, the, the constant battle with the, with the flesh and our sanctification, you know? Now, it's not like this, is it? How do we, how do we win? Like this. Prayer, praise, surrender, just yieldedness, Right? But, but I, I, I'm so thankful that Paul skipped this whole process because sometimes it's three steps forward and three steps back, two steps forward and three steps back, five steps forward. And you, you, know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. But you listen to me. You cannot lose as long as what? You never give up. And you'll never give up if it's God within you. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began that good work in you, what? Now, I've seen far too many people fall away. Why? Because it wasn't a good work that he began. It was of their own initiative. It was of their own desire. But it wasn't of the Lord. One other passage. Go to, go to Romans 12. I can't help but go here. Therefore... If truly God is at work in your life and you are justified, you are going to receive that glorification. And so what's going to be taking place is there's an absolute certainty of sanctification. We're going to see that as we continue on in chapter 2, that the result of their salvation was this wonderful surrender and yieldedness to God. Now, we have a lot of people who want all of the blessings associated with being a Christian. They just don't want all of the surrender, all of the sacrifice, all of the self-denial. You know, I want to be able to go to the donut shop and still have a European figure. It's not working for me. <laughs> Chapter 12 says, verse 1, I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, couldn't be stronger, 
Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of service. He's begging them to go ahead and surrender their life. Now, can you do that? Not on your own. There's only one way you can do it. He describes that in the text. By the mercy of God. By the mercies of God alone, you can have the ability through the person of the Holy Spirit to truly surrender your life. A, sur a person who has a surrendered life to Jesus Christ, it's only because of God's mercy. God's mercy. Paul begins every one of his epistles by saying, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, and then he would say to the church, grace and peace unto you, except in two, three places. What are we going over on Saturday morning? The pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. Isn't it interesting? That's the only place, First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, where Paul says, grace mercy and peace be unto you. <laughs> Why? Pastor needs mercy, right, David? <laughs> oh, that's another matter. Okay. <laughs> I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's not saying how much you can get away with and still be saved. No, 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 no. The more you know him, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you serve him and surrender to him. He's talking about a living sacrifice, but he's talking about, in the Old Testament, the burnt offering. What's the Hebrew word for the burnt offering? Holocaust. Isn't that interesting? Do you understand Jesus was a holocaust for the world? Do you understand God determined, predetermined the holocaust of Israel? Wow. For awakening of the world? He's saying, will you be a burnt offering? What was, what was distinguishable with the burnt offering as opposed to any other offering? The peace offering, sin offering, grain offering, what other, all the other offerings, fellowship offering, all the other offerings, what's the difference between that and the, peace, and the, and the burnt offering? What you said. The whole sacrifice was consumed for God. Now, listen, I'm, this, this is the word of God. It's not me. If you have a problem with what I'm saying, if you want to contend with anybody, don't take it up with me. Don't call me. You take it up with God. Because God is saying here, if you truly are his, then you're going to be consumed with God. Your life is going to be consumed with the purposes of God, the will of God. You're going to be on fire for the Lord. Hmm? What, what percentage of the church tithes? What percentage of the church shares their faith on a regular basis? You understand why I'll never be a pastor of a megachurch? <laughs> Nor do I ever want to be. Because the cost of discipleship is to sacrifice your life. For he, would, he who would seek to save his life will but he who loses his life for my sake will. He who purposes to save his marriage will never find the fulfillment and the joy and the meaning of true marriage. But he who sacrifices his marriage will find that meaning. It's it, all about the different relationships of life, beginning with the vertical. And then the horizontal becomes everything as we offer that to God. If you try to shape your children into the image you have for them, 85% of the children who regularly attend church, regularly attend your youth group, 85% walk away from the faith when they leave their home. 85%. Why? Because parents are trying to help them live their life rather than surrender to his. But if you really truly give your children to him who they belong to in the beginning, in the first place, you'll save them. You'll save them. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? No, it's not, it's, not, it's not for me to say, right? But you need to think about this. We're, we're approaching the end of the church age. We're approaching that time where Jesus is going to separate the goats from the sheep, where many, many, many will hear him say, depart from me, I... Your, your life wasn't consumed with me. You wanted me to jump on board your program, your life. And how did it work out for you? It doesn't, does it? Mm 
you know, I don't, I don't mean to be difficult, uh, <laughs> but, but, but it's a difficult time we live in, and it's a seducing time. It's a very deceptive time. And, and, and Jesus and every New Testament writer warned us that in the days leading up to the end of the age, there will be such deception that people won't be, dis- be able to discern the truth from the error. Because people base what they believe on their experience and their feelings rather than the truth of God's word. And we're there, beloved. And so you need to be careful. It's my, it's my responsibility as your under-shepherd to Jesus Christ, as the sheepdog that God's called me to be, to encourage you to really examine your life and ask yourself, what are you really surrendered to? All I have to do is the same thing that Jesus does is look at two things, your check register and your daytimer. All I want to see is your check register and your daytimer. And I'll know who your God is, whether it's him or you. That's, 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 the only, that's the only two possibilities, right? We either love ourselves or we love God. But you show me those two things, and I'll tell you who you love. I'll tell you what you are. You don't need to interpret what I'm saying. They know it. <laughs> I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which is a reasonable act of service. What does that word mean? We went over this on Saturday morning with the fellas. What does that word mean? Worship. Worship. Listen to me. What, what Paul is describing here is true Christian worship. It's not you singing songs, lifting up your hands, and tears flowing down your face. Although that happens to me. You know, I get very excited when I worship because of what I know of him. Not because of the music, but because of him, what he's done in my life. It is well. It is well. I remember I sang that song a cappella at my father-in-law's funeral. And I never sang so good in my life. It was the Holy Spirit helping me. (laughs) I could never repeat that. And my unsaved brother-in-law came up to me and said, you really believe all that, don't you? You sang it like you believe it. I said, I absolutely do. It is well. True? Yeah, yeah. Important that you display to the world and to those you love the most that you live what you believe. So important, isn't it? So many don't. Yes, your reasonable act of worship. We place, we place far too much emphasis upon what? What is it? Okay, feelings, but, but in the worship service, music, excuse me, music. Music can charge you up. Music can be used of God in such wonderful ways. I wish, I w- you know, I, anybody know who Andrea Bocelli is? I wish he was a saved man, because then he would sing sacred music from his heart. When I listen to him sing sacred music, it's just, it's just music. It's just, he's a good performer, but it's not from his heart. And there are a lot of people singing worship songs on a Sunday morning. It's just, it's just music. It's not from their heart. True worship is the surrender of your life. Take up your cross. How often? Daily, Daniel, happy birthday. Daily, and the rest of you, happy birthday. Daily, take up your cross and follow me. It's a daily sacrifice. I wish once and for all I could get it over with. No, but that's a sanctification. Where daily I have to surrender my life. But Satan has used music so powerfully in the past and in the present to allure people away. Who was the first worship leader of heaven? Hasatan, Lucifer. Very clear. How did the pipe paper get all the rats to drown themselves in the river? Music. What is Satan using today to deceive thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people today away from the truth of God's word? Music. Music. 
Make no mistake about that. And if you think I'm wrong, you prove it to me. Which is your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there should be a transformation that takes place in your life. If truly you are a Christian, then you're not going to stay the way you are. God loves you and he'll save you just as you are. We're going to be celebrating very soon. What feast? What feast are we going to be celebrating? Passover. Thank you. Pesach. What happened on Pesach? Israel was birthed. What was the other opportunity that took place for Pesach? You were birthed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Right? Birth. By his death, we receive life. By his death, we receive life. And therefore, by my death, I display his life. Wow. How does that go? By his death, I receive life. By my death, I display his life. Pesach. Shavuot, the next feast, is the feast of, the Jews would call it the feast of revelation. So once, once you're saved, then, then, then you, you need to grow in that salvation. You need to grow. You're going to be not conformed to this world because the world wants to press you into... Listen, never, ever, ever before in the history of the United States has the government been so hostile against what we believe. They, you are public enemy number one. Conservative pro-life Christians are domestic so you know. Look at how unfair the justice system, law enforcement system, the judicial system of the United States has been against law-abiding, Christian-loving, life-breathing Christians as opposed to the anarchists. Black Lives Matter, Antifa, LGBTQXYZ. It's insane. But listen to me. Aren't you glad the Father told us ahead of time? And now we just need to stand strong. And having done all to stand, therefore, stand. Right? On what? Your feelings, your experience, on what? The truth of God's word. Because it's under attack more than ever before. Don't you know? Those people were born that way. Born what way? Yeah, born sinners. We're all born that way. Right? We're all sinners. You just We just have a diversity of sin preferences. Okay? Mine happens to be ice cream and donuts. What's yours? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And so, so that's just, that is their particular sin preference. But all sin is sin. There's no different measures of sin, is there? Venial sins, cardinal sins, no, no, no. Sin is sin. And how many sins does it take to keep you out of heaven? One. <laughs> Enough of that. Acts, Acts chapter 2. We are going to finish the chapter. No, we're not. <laughs> yeah, you know that. Didn't you? See, you're a prophet. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, at salvation, everyone receives the gift of the Holy Spirit because he comes to dwell in you. Now, when you really give away your life, you receive the epi, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, where he comes upon you. And I want to give you that opportunity this morning as we end the service. Next week, we'll pick it up where Peter is going to talk about the spiritual and practical unity of the family of God that comes as a result of your salvation. We don't believe in communism and socialism. Those are forced upon you by the government, right? Those are governmental institutions, socialism, communism. But what we believe is that we are a family. In my culture, I'm an Italian-American, and, and where I grew up, it was a subculture in upstate New York, and it was a Polish-Italian community. But what was everything to us? Yeah. Family. Food. <laughs> and then food. <laughs> but, but family was everything. La familia, numero uno, right? The family was everything. It was number one. The family, the family, the family. What would you think they got that idea? 
And now we are the family of God. And in this family, there should be a spiritual unity, a oneness of mind, a oneness of belief, a oneness of purpose. And then a very practical oneness, too. We're family. We rejoice with one another. We cry with one another. We strain our backs for one another. <laughs> because we're family. And my prayer has always been that, I, Lord, I don't ever want to just speak to an audience, Lord. I want to speak to my family. I so missed... Every Sunday, every Sunday, the family had to be at Afonso's house. Who's Afonso? My grandfather. My grandfather, Josephine and Afonso, married 73 years, marriage. Marriage, 73 years. I'm going to be around a long time. <laughs> Unfortunately for me. <laughs> but every Sunday, his nine children and their spouses and all their children had to be at Grandpa's house. Every Sunday. If you weren't there, you, you were accountable. Alfonso wanted to know. And every Sunday, Alfonso would come to the table with his shirt and his tie, and the family would gather together. And we have a three-hour meal. Why do you think Cornelius was the first Gentile to be saved? He was an Italian, and Italians know how to feast. <laughs> and the biggest mistake of my life, my biggest regret, is I only had one child. How stupid and foolish and selfish of me. And I so miss those family gatherings. There were no less than 50 people every Saturday, every Sunday. Saturday, the, the women of the family spent the whole day in food preparation. I mean, we could eat. My friends called my house the family, the house of food. You know, you, you, 10 people drop over, give my mother 10 minutes, she'll have a meal for 10. She's, I don't know how she did it, but she just did it. You know. But I said, God, I just so miss my family gatherings. <laughs> I have a family. And we gather together every Sunday to have a meal together. <laughs> All right, Mike, you got to help me. Where's Mike? <laughs> That's another Variali over there. He can help me. He can cook. But listen to me. And, and I got up at 1.30 this morning to prepare food for you. Yeah. I, do, I do that every Sunday morning to, to, to try to prepare a, a meal for you. I had more prepared than I have time to give. I'm sorry. Well done. But we... No, 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 no. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Please, no, no, no. Praise God. Praise, I'm the jackass he's speaking to right now. Make no mistake about that. But I want to give you, but, but, the, but, but I'm the jackass that he is dwelling within. I'm the jackass that he has come upon. And I'm just so thankful for it. Now, I can say that about myself. You can't. <laughs> but you, you are the one he has come to dwell within. And I beg you, I implore you, I beseech you, allow him to now come upon you. And you'll discover your calling and your purpose in the will of God. Can we pray that right now? And if that's, listen, if that's you this morning and you want to know your calling and your purpose and you want God to come upon you and empower you for his desire in your life, would you stand up this morning? Stand up to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for you and for your children. Wonderful. Praise God. Pastor David, come on up here. I believe every word of God's word. I don't worship the God, I don't worship the word of God, I worship the God of the word. The word of God leads me to a complete and full understanding of the God of the word. And he has promised me and you, if we will repent and believe and ask, just simply ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, will he not give it to you? You fathers being evil, if your children ask you for bread, do you give them a rock? Ask you for an egg, do you give him a serpent? How much more so your Father in heaven when you ask for the Holy Spirit? Will he not give it to you? 
Oh, Father, we pray right now, Father. Father, we believe your word. I, I have experienced the truth of your word in my life, Lord. And I ask for myself and everyone in my hearing, everyone over the internet, everyone in this sanctuary this morning, this congregation, this communion, this family, Lord, that you would come upon us once again, empower us by the person of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, may there be another Pentecost right now, right now, Lord. We have come to know who you are through the power experience of the Holy Spirit. Now we have surrendered our life and we have your Holy Spirit within us. Now we ask, Father, that you, that you just fill us as we offer our lives a living sacrifice unto you, Lord. Lord, we don't want to live our own life. We want to live the life that you have for us, Lord, for your glory and for your honor. Come upon us, Holy Spirit. Fill us, we pray, in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen.